0: a voice Ain't no better man With a better plan Give the night, night What we need Is time Come out come on Everybody I wanna hear you say Come out come on Everybody Don't you wanna let Shonday Don't you wanna let day I can not feel You can't feel it too Take our country back From the money view They can't trump us now Let me tell you why There are more of us On a better life Come on, come on, everybody We're going town to town Come on, come on, everybody Burn the system down. Burn the system down. I can feel the burn. You can feel it too. Take our country back from the progress. I can feel the burn. You can feel it too. Take our country back from the progress. Come out on, come on and I want to hear you say, come out come on, everybody, meet you on election day, meet you on election day. I can feel the burn, you can feel it too, feels of it choice.
1: And that was I Can Feel the Burn by Scott B. Adams, which you can find on YouTube. At the end of the program, we'll hear I Feel the Burn by James Tuttle. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. If you want to Look at the older episodes and get some other links to some uh, great sites featuring Bernie. You can do that at my website, bernie-2016.com. In addition to some links, you'll find a link there to my Flipboard magazine called Bernie for President. So coming out of the New Hampshire primary, New Hampshire primary was a huge win for Bernie, bigger than anyone had expected, uh, maybe other than one or two pollsters who had um, polls that were pretty close to the final results there. But most put uh, Bernie's expected win in New Hampshire at about 15%, and of course, Bernie went on to win by 22%. In New Hampshire. So, coming out of that big win after a tie in Iowa, we have some uh, polls that are are moving in Bernie's favor. This first one is from morningconsult.com by Reed Wilson. After winning New Hampshire's presidential primaries by wide margins, New York real estate magnate Donald Trump and Senator Bernie Sanders are soaring to new heights among their respective parties' voters, a new morning consult poll finds, signaling momentum as voters in new states prepare to weigh in. On the Democratic side, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton wins 46% of the vote, just seven points higher than Sanders' 39%, the largest percentage of Vermont Independent has ever notched in a morning consult survey. And so that's a seven-point spread by this particular poll. And going into New Hampshire nationally, Bernie was hovering in the 15-16% on average of the uh, polls. So the national polling was hovering between uh, 15-16% for the nomination for the um, president for the Democrats. But coming out of New Hampshire, some things have shifted. Sanders leads by a significant 55 to 36 percent margin among voters between 18 and 29 years old, while Clinton does best among those over 65 years old. Sanders leads among independents, while Clinton holds a 13 point lead among Democrats. Results that closely mirror exit polls from Iowa and New Hampshire. Tellingly, Sanders has seen a boost in the number of voters who see him favorably, especially among Democrats. More Democrats now say they see Sanders favorably, 78%, than those who say the same of Clinton, 75%. Until now, Clinton has enjoyed an edge in favorable ratings among her party's voters. Sanders is the only candidate in the field in either party who has seen favorably by a majority of voters. And so that's a, a first look at the national polling and the movement of those national polls coming out of New Hampshire. And let's take a look at the states that are up next. And the first state that's up, it's uh, coming up this Saturday, February 20th, um, is the state of Nevada. And this piece is from politicususa.com. By Jason Easley, a new poll revealed that Bernie Sanders has erased Hillary Clinton's double-digit lead, and the race in Nevada is tied at 45 to 45. A Washington Free Beacon target point poll showed the candidates tied at 45 percent in Nevada, and Hillary Clinton leading 34 to 32 percent among those who have definitely made up their minds. Sanders led Clinton 52 to 29 percent when asked who which candidate was more honest and trustworthy on the question of which candidate cares more about people like you sanders led clinton 49 to 36% sanders also led clinton 49 to 36% on the question of which candidate was more progressive the poll also found that hillary clinton's paid speeches to the big banks have the potential to do her great harm of those surveyed said the speeches made it less likely that they would support her. The survey was conducted by landline and mobile phone with 1,269 likely Democratic caucus goers. So, uh, that particular poll showing things dead even in Nevada and the polling for Nevada has been very, very slim. There have been very few polls coming out, um, this poll was probably the first one since last December that came out, which the last December poll showed Clinton with a very, very large lead, neighborhood of 20 to 30% lead. Um, but since this poll came out, another poll came out. I believe it was a CNN poll, but not 100% sure. I don't have that one in front of me. But that one showed very, very close to the same results here. I think Clinton was ahead by one percentage point. Uh, maybe two percentage points in that other poll that came out about Nevada. In addition to that, uh, Nate Silver, who is talked about him last time, Um, he put Bernie's chance of winning New Hampshire at 99% um, for the New Hampshire primary. And he has come out and given the Chance of Bernie winning in Nevada, um, a slight edge, about 51% chance that Bernie will win Nevada versus 49% chance that Hillary will win Nevada, with still a few days to go. So I expect that number to move around a little bit, but we'll see if um, that actually grows in Bernie's favor or if that drops back down. And Hillary Clinton's campaign itself has really started to downplay Nevada, um, And in doing so has really ticked off Harry Reid, the uh, senator from Nevada, who fought very hard to get Nevada's primary or Nevada's caucus moved up early in the process, arguing very strongly that Nevada is more representative of other areas of the country other than uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, which are predominantly white um, Nevada has a significant minority population. I think in the neighborhood of 45% um, African-American and Latino um, in Nevada. And Hillary's campaign said about Nevada when they were downplaying their chances of winning, well, Nevada looks kind of like Iowa and kind of like New Hampshire. It's 80% white. And that is what really got Harry Reid a... Uh, Fuming, And Harry Reid, uh, I was going to say Harry Reid supported Hillary, but I don't think that's actually the case. I think that Harry Reid has remained neutral and not endorsed yet in the Democratic primary. So it's uh, looking good. Certainly tons of work to do for Sanders in Nevada. But as things stand right now, a, a better than fair chance that Sanders will actually win in Nevada. And that would be absolutely phenomenal for maintaining and boosting Sanders' uh, momentum, if he can win by, by at least 5%. And it's a caucus, so Sanders has some advantages in the caucus. Um, Hillary actually won the popular vote in that caucus, but uh, Obama ended up winning more delegates from Nevada when they ran against each other and then shortly after we have uh shortly after nevada votes um uh, about a week later actually we go to south carolina south carolina is a significant fight significant battle um it is on the democratic side majority um black voters in south carolina so reaching reaching those voters reaching the um young young blacks and black women extraordinarily critical and there's tons of stories in the media now about how the candidates are good or bad for um the the black population there and across the country and uh I won't I don't have any of those stories on the, the dock here today um but may may share some of those stories in the future but things are getting pretty heated and and kind of on the ugly side, and not always. And actually, probably much less so directly from the candidates. Um, the candidates' campaigns themselves, Bernie Sanders' campaign, definitely is at best working on the margins of uh, focusing on Clinton's um, shortcomings and. Hillary's campaign uh proper is is somewhat similar although Bill and Chelsea seem to be out there making some more significant digs at Bernie. Uh Bill Clinton in Florida implied that Bernie's supporters are the equivalent of the Tea Party but on the liberal side. And Chelsea Clinton, um, what did Chelsea say? Chelsea said, we're not nominating a king. Oh, she said that it was very scary, that Bernie's plans to cut, significantly cut back the amount of incarcerated individuals we have in this country. Um, Chelsea was quoted as saying that that was scary. So on to South Carolina And this one is MSNBC by Joy Ann Reed. Even before Senator Bernie Sanders began surging in early state and national polls, the Hillary Clinton campaign viewed South Carolina as her firewall, mainly due to her much higher standing and name recognition with black voters. But there are signs that the Clinton team may be falling behind the Sanders campaign, both in terms of organizing on the ground and exciting black voters. Even as former Secretary Clinton maintains a large lead in the polls and the prog- prognosticators like 538.com, and that's actually the website that Nate Silver uh, is a part of, um, prognosticators like 538.com give her overwhelming odds of winning the state's primary in two weeks. And I'm not sure if this particular article actually has some specific numbers in it, but uh, a poll that I saw today had Hillary ahead by about 19 percentage points over Bernie. Uh, As of last week, the Clinton campaign had only two campaign offices in South Carolina, one in Charleston and another one in the capital, Columbia, with just 14 full-time staffers, including State Director Clay Middleton, The campaign also has nine, quote, get-out-the-vote sites, smaller-scale sites devoted to turnout across the state. Sanders' campaign, meanwhile, had 240 staffers on the ground as of last week, 80% of them African-American, spread across 10 offices statewide. Quote, that's real infrastructure, said one veteran South Carolina political consultant on who who was involved in the 2008 effort to elect Barack Obama and who spoke on background quote Trump lost Iowa because his campaign didn't have infrastructure and Ted Cruz did. That's what gets people to the polls. And Hillary is the very person who should know about infrastructure because that's how she lost to Obama in 2008 in the first place. And in South Carolina, Hillary also had a very strong lead over Obama Um, Even going into the Iowa caucuses, but coming out of the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary, there was a significant shift and the the, um, black voters in South Carolina who had been polling to be strongly supporting Clinton in 2008 shifted and moved their support over to Obama. The Sanders campaign is using both traditional and innovative strategies to reach voters, including, quote, Bernie Bingo for seniors who get a ride to the polls after enjoying the board game with the youthful canvassers. Voters in South Carolina have been able to vote early, absentee, or in person since January 1. And the Sanders campaign is taking full advantage before the end of early voting for Democrats on February twenty-six. Primary voting days for Republicans and Democrats are February 20 and 27, respectively. Yeah, the, these uh, both South Carolina and Nevada, the Republicans and the Democrats are not aligned on those dates. So uh, the Democrats go to Nevada first, while the Republicans go to South Carolina, and then they kind of flip. And then coming out of South Carolina heading towards March 1st. There are 12 states that hold primaries on March 1st, and I have information on a couple of those that are going uh, Bernie Sanders' way in the current polls. And this story is from MassLive.com. A new poll has Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders leading Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton by seven points in the Massachusetts primary. Public Policy Polling Survey showed Sanders grabbing 49% to Clinton's 42%. The survey, which polled 12 states holding primaries between March 1 and March 8, also showed Sanders leading in his home state of Vermont with 86%. The Massachusetts presidential primary is set for March 1. The poll interviewed likely Democratic primary voters from February 14 to February 16. About 538 people were interviewed in Massachusetts. While likely voters believe Clinton is stronger on foreign policy and trusted to improve race relations, they also believe Sanders is trusted to crack down on Wall Street and, quote, pursue policies that raise the incomes of the average Americans, unquote. 75% of likely Massachusetts Democratic primary voters said they had a favorable opinion of Sanders versus a 14% unfavorable rating. Likely voters said they had a 60% favorable rating and a 29% unfavorable rating for Clinton. So Sanders showing some strength in Massachusetts, and in 2008, Hillary Clinton beat Barack Obama in Massachusetts. So uh, some strong polling there for Massachusetts and, of course, in his home state of Vermont, where Bernie Sanders is actually the most popular senator as rated by each state's um, each state's citizens or residents. He is the most popular senator in the United States. And then to follow up um, one more a national poll that has a little bit different story from the first one that I covered that had a seven-point deficit for Bernie Sanders, and this is from Quinnipiac.edu. Quinnipiac University national poll finds Clinton Sanders locked in a tie among Democrats. In the Democratic race nationwide, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has 44%, with Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont at 42%, and 11% undecided, unchanged from February 5. So a lot of these polls are starting to get into, especially the national polls, a weekly measure of what uh, the pollsters find out there and how people are responding. And last week, this particular poll also had Hillary Clinton at 44% and Bernie Sanders at 42% nationally. So this is based on these two polls from one company. Um, Bernie Sanders is tied with Hillary Clinton nationally for the Democratic nomination. And that's pretty incredible. We're in an an incredible place here from all of the pundits and all of the media and all of the establishment politicians, pretty much almost every voice out there said this wasn't going to happen. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Hillary Clinton was the inevitable nominee. It's why many other potential candidates didn't run because of her, uh perceived strength and why the other candidates who did run, there were four other significant Democratic candidates who ran, including uh, Mr. Lessig, um, had dropped out because Hillary and Bernie really dominated the field and did not leave any room for any other candidates to really get a foothold. Um, So for for after only two states have voted for Bernie Sanders to be tied nationally with Hillary Clinton is just an absolutely amazing place to be in this election period. So uh, before the last um, before the New Hampshire results came in, uh, Hillary had pushed for that extra uh, debate to try to get in front of the voters and try to contrast her policies and her record with Sanders' policies and record one more time. And the next few stories, or a few of the next stories, um, are related to some of the the things that came up in that debate. And this first one is from Salon.com. And this is by Ben Norton. Quote, I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. I will not take advice from Henry Kissinger. Bernie Sanders declared in the Milwaukee presidential debate on Thursday night, Quote, where the secretary and I have been have very profound difference. Sanders explained in her book and in this last debate, she talked about getting the approval or the support or the mentoring of Henry Kissinger. Now, I find that rather amazing because I happen to believe that Henry Kissinger was one of the most destructive secretaries of state in the modern history of this country. These are some of the most important words Sanders has ever uttered about foreign policy, and they show he is appreciably better on the issue than Hillary Clinton in all the ways that matter. The historical facts make it clear that Sanders is absolutely correct, Kissinger was, hands down, one of the most destructive secretaries of state in the modern history of the U.S. In the previous Democratic presidential debate on February 4, Clinton bragged that she's supported by the destructive former secretary of state. Quote, I was very flattered when Henry Kissinger said I ran the State Department better than anybody had run it in a long time, she said. Salon detailed at the time how Kissinger is an accused war criminal who oversaw policies that led to the deaths of millions of people. Kissinger met with Nazis who wanted, to help, who wanted help overthrowing West Germany's left-leaning government, said, quote, we will be friends with the Khmer Rouge, who he admitted, quote, are murderous thugs, but we won't let that stand in the way. He supported far-right Latin American dictatorships in their campaign of systematic state terrorism against left-wing movements. He oversaw the violent coup that toppled Chile's democratically elected socialist government and installed a far-right dictator who killed, tortured, and disappeared countless people. He promoted a madman strategy in the U.S. war in Vietnam in which approximately 3 million Vietnamese were killed and more. And uh, one thing that Sanders brought up himself in that debate was Henry Kissinger and how he um, bombed Cambodia and really set the stage for the Khmer Rouge to take power there, which was absolutely devastating genocide um, in uh, Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge. It is hard to overstate the severity of the crimes overseen by Kissinger, who infamously boasted, quote, the illegal we do immediately, the unconstitutional, takes a little longer. New York University historian Greg Grandin, one of the leading specialists on Kissinger, has written that, quote, Kissinger's policies resulted in at least 4,124,000 civilian deaths, probably many times that number of wounded and refugees. And that doesn't include Kissinger's victims in Vietnam, a war that he and Nixon helped prolong for five years when they sabotaged 1968 peace talks, Laos or Argentina, Uruguay, the Middle East, and the Persian Gulf at the hands of Kissinger's partners such as the Shah and the Saudis. Grandin spelled out in salon in detail Kissinger's involvement in genocides and atrocities in Cambodia, Angola, Mozambique, Rhodesia, South Africa, East Pakistan, Cambodia. Oh, look, they listed Cambodia twice. East Timor, Guatemala, and more. Regardless of Cambodia showing up twice, the list is extremely long. In his landmark book on the former Secretary of State. Kissinger's Shadow, Grandin reveals how Kissinger ramped up violent U.S. militarism, pouring gasoline on the fire of the Cold War. Quote, and yet Clinton continues to call his name, hoping his light bathes her in wisdom, the historian says. Clinton does much more than just continue to call his name, however. Salon has exposed how emails released from Clinton's time as Secretary of State for the Obama administration reveal close ties to Kissinger. One of the emails suggests that Clinton saw Kissinger as her role model. Another is an intimate handwritten message in which Kissinger tells Clinton, quote, I greatly admire the skill and aplomb with which you conduct our foreign policy. And this next piece, also on foreign policy from Politico.com, by Lawrence Korb. On CNN last week and on Meet the Press this week, Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders cited me as someone who has given him foreign policy advice. I admit I was surprised to hear this. I have spoken to Senator Sanders only once since he declared his candidacy in October In the time since, this fact has been used by the media and his opponents to cast doubt on Sanders' foreign policy credibility, to point out a supposed weak spot in a surging candidacy. Since I'm not on his campaign and have met with him only once, how serious could Sanders, the socialist crusader battling the former Secretary of State, really be? The answer is... Serious. Since Sanders' public mention of me, I've been asked repeatedly whether I think his foreign policy positions and experience are sound. I do. In my dealings with him and in analyzing his record in Congress over the past 25 years, i found that Sanders has taken balanced, realistic positions on many of the most critical foreign policy issues facing the country. In the molds of realists like Brent Scowcroft, National Security Advisor to President Richard Nixon, and George H.W. Bush. Sanders voted against the invasion of Iraq in 2002 while he while wisely supporting the war against uh, against Afghanistan in 2001 and the intervention in the Balkans in the 1990s. And Sanders certainly isn't a foreign policy lightweight. In fact, given his long tenure in the House and Senate, he has more foreign policy experience than Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama did when they were running for office the first time. And I would add to that, and he, pro- and he has more foreign policy experience than Hillary Clinton had when she became the Secretary of State. What would a President Sanders' foreign policy look like? Based on his record and my conversation with him, I believe it would be rooted in a number of key principles. First is restraint in using American force abroad, as he has stated And as is demonstrated by his vote against the Iraq War and the First Gulf War, Sanders believes military action should be the last, not first, option, and that when taken, such action should be multilateral. I also believe, based on our conversation, that he would follow the Weinberger Doctrine, also known as the Powell Doctrine. When the United States uses military force abroad, our objectives should be clear, we should be prepared to use all the force necessary to achieve those objectives, and we should know when they have been achieved. Sanders has demonstrated these principles in Congress. Before the 2016 campaign, I briefed him once in 2006 when we discussed a foreign policy paper I had co-authored about how the United States could begin a strategic phased withdrawal from Iraq. Unlike many of his Democratic colleagues who characterized our plan as cut and run, Sanders supported it. He recognized that Iraq was not the most critical front in the war against terror, that America's involvement there was creating more terrorists in the region and around the globe than we were capturing or killing, and that the Iraq war was diverting attention and resources from the necessary war in Afghanistan. Sanders' military restraint extends to spending, too. Since coming to Congress, he has argued forcefully and repeatedly for eliminating waste, fraud, and abuse in the Pentagon so that we can reduce defense spending. There is no need for the United States to spend more than the next seven top spending countries in the world combined, several of which are our allies, and more in real dollars than we spent annually on average during the Cold War. As President Obama has pointed out, while America has the many challenges in the world, we are not in the midst of World War Three. And the story goes on um, with a, a lot more uh, information on Sanders' foreign policy and based on the discussions that uh, Mr. Korb had with Bernie Sanders and on Bernie Sanders' record. Um, so this is uh, a Very good piece to take a look at. It is from Politico.com. It was published on February 11. And it is called Bernie Sanders is more serious on foreign policy than you think. And another thing that's come up um, in the debates and after the debates are money and politics. It's one of Bernie Sanders' major um, platform planks, something that he's running on very strongly. He puts as one of his top priorities is trying to fight and trying to get that um, enormous amounts of money, largely from millionaires and billionaires, out of the system. And this piece is from truthout.org by Dean Baker. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has made the corrupting role of money in politics a centerpiece of his campaign. He has argued that because campaign contributions by the rich pay for political campaigns, they are able to control the political process. This gives us a political system that is very effective at serving Wall Street in the insurance and pharmaceutical industries. It is much less effective at serving the needs of ordinary people. This has created an interesting dynamic in the race for the Democratic nomination. Secretary Hillary Clinton has flipped Sanders' claim around and challenged him to show where she has reversed a position to serve the moneyed interests. This might be a useful campaign tactic, but it misrepresents the way in which money affects campaigns. And there likely are some examples. They're not the big, giant, glaring examples, but Elizabeth Warren did point out in an interview several years ago that Clinton changed her vote, changed her position on the bankruptcy bill um, that went through Congress and... Where she had opposed it earlier on, Uh, she supported that bankruptcy bill later on, and Senator Warren believes, and I believe, that the main reason why she changed her position on that bill was because of her donor's. And back to the story. Undoubtedly, there are cases where an individual or industry group promises a large campaign contribution in exchange for a politician's support on a particular issue. But this is almost certainly rare. More typically, the support of politicians for moneyed interests is part of a much longer process. It is not just that the politician wants wants to act to curry the favor of the rich and powerful. More typically, they identify with the interests of the rich and powerful, so they don't even see themselves as compromising a principle. Trade policy provides an excellent example. During the last quarter century, the leadership of both political parties has consistently pushed trade deals that have worked against the interests of a large percentage of U.S. workers. This was not an accidental outcome from these deals. It was by design. And you can tell the same story on a wide range of issues. The Wall Street bailouts were necessary to prevent, quote, second Great Depression. The pol- politicians may have no clue why, but this is why f- what their friends told them. The Fed has to raise interest rates, even though that means fewer people will have jobs, because there is some risk of inflation. The list can be extended at considerable length. The people who might challenge these views, who can point to evidence showing that these views are wrong, rarely get a chance to push their arguments into the political debate, because they are not backed by the millionaires and billionaires. These are people who are ignored or are mocked by media outlets like the Washington Post. This is how the wealthy control the political process. The system makes it extremely difficult for those who challenge the policies that serve their interests to ever be heard. That is why it is inspiring to see a candidate like Senator Sanders get enough money and support to be a serious contender for the Democratic nomination, even without big-money contributions. When we actually see money being handled over to, handed over to politicians from the wealthy, whether in the form of large speaking fees or a high-paying job, it is probably best to think of it as analogous to a Valentine's present. No one loves their spouse or significant other because of a generous Valentine gift. Rather, it is a symbol of ongoing affection. I think that really nails the problem with establishment politics and with the huge amounts of money that uh, are needed to maintain people's seats and to win elections. Um, The the whole system has been really corrupted and a majority of our representatives and senators believe in what the rich and powerful and the corporations believe in it's a very small minority that can fight that or that don't get don't succumb to the trap of big money and Washington parties and insider insider, you know, activities in 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 Washington that uh feed each other and when you identify so closely to the rich and the wealthy and the corporations you can easily say I'm standing up for what I believe in because what you believe in is what the corporations and the millionaires believe in and I think that's a a major problem. It gets ba- it gets back to the point that I I read in a in an article. I think I read that one previously in an, in an earlier episode, where Clinton talks um, in some strong language along along the same road and the same path that Bernie talks, but she couches that, and you can hear her. And I think that it was it was most loud and clear on breaking up the big banks. When Bernie said, "Absolutely, in his first hundred days, he will have a plan and he will he will break up the big banks," um, and when Hillary talks about breaking up the big banks, she says, "Absolutely, I'm going to break up the big banks. If we look at the big banks and if we determine that they're a major risk to our economy, then I'll break them up." And those ifs are huge and telling about where her, where her beliefs lie. She can easily say, if these people are doing bad things, I'm going to take care of it. But what if she never believes that these people are doing bad things? Then, then she didn't lie. She, uh, she told the truth. It was just couched in a way that made it ineffective. It made it no matter what she What action she takes after that kind of a statement, you know, um, most people can't really pin her down and say she she lied and she said she was going to do one thing and she did something else because she's couching that in that language of if we determine that this is the case, then we'll take care of it in some way. And that's the big banks are not the only issue that uh, that she talks about in that type of language. One of the major pieces of legislation, and there were at least a few, if not several, that came out of the Bill Clinton White House and presidency, um, was the Crime Bill of 1994. This was the Tough on Crime Bill, three strikes, you're out. Anybody who's as old as I am uh, remembers some of that debate and it was a, a time in the in the Clinton presidency where tough on crime was super popular, and and Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton are not progressives. They've never been. Well, I won't say they've never been progressives. There may have been a time in Bill Clinton's youth in which he really believed in some progressive ideals, but when bill clinton started to uh make moves toward running for office and getting elected in arkansas and beyond um he he put he's allowed he left those behind bill clinton governed governed as a centrist and made tons of deals with the republicans to pass horrible bills the crime bill of 1994 was just one the welfare reform that Clinton passed was another these are bills that were very harsh and really bad particularly for minority communities and there were others as well don't don't ask don't tell the defense of marriage act these are all uh policies that came out when a democrat was the president a uh, clinton was the president so um you know don't be surprised when many of us don't want another Clinton to be president. It's not because of some other factors. It's, it's because of the history of the Clintons. It's because of what they have stood for and what they currently stand for and whether or not we believe they are sincere or especially in Hillary's case. I haven't heard bill other than bill regretting some of those policies that he did pass. Um, I haven't heard him uh, claim that he was a progressive. So on the crime bill, um, Hillary Clinton in one of the recent debates said that Bernie Sanders was the only person up there on the stage that actually voted for the crime bill. And and that was this egregious crime bill. It locked up tons of people. It is why we have more people in prison than any other nation on earth, including China, which has many, many more, a much, much larger uh, general population than we have. Um, We still have more people locked up in prison than they do or any other nation. It's absolutely a fact that Bernie Sanders did vote for the crime bill, but like some of his other votes, it's much more complicated than It looks on the surface and voting is in general when Hillary Clinton talks about, she's a progressive that will get things done. She means that she will make deals and she will make compromises and she will move legislation forward. And that is how the Congress works. And Bernie Sanders as a member of that Congress for a long time um, works within that framework, he makes deals, he compromises he sometimes votes for legislation that look, look bad or legislation that he doesn't fully agree with because some parts of it he, he does agree with. And on the flip side, as um, a, a bit of legislation or piece of legislation on immigration that Ted Kennedy put forth, Bernie Sanders voted against that, not because he opposed everything in that bill, but because there were pieces of that bill that he strongly opposed and that others did as well. In in particular, I think it's called the H-1B visas, the guest worker visas that um, were were going to get uh, expanded significantly under that bill that he very strongly disagreed with. So that is the uh, reality of making legislation that uh Clinton often states that that um Sanders doesn't understand when Sanders fully understands it she she on one hand says he doesn't understand his bill his his ideas won't get past this Congress because you have to compromise and you have to work with other people. He fully understands that it's why he voted in certain ways in the past that Hillary is also uh also attacking and I'm not saying that his his votes were right um, but that his votes were much more complex than is seen at face value and I certainly wouldn't defend his his votes he voted the way he voted he, only he can h- explain and defend why he voted the way he voted and on the crime bill in particular uh, I found two clips on YouTube with Sanders giving speeches, one on the crime bill at large and and the need for the legislation and the failures of uh, the Congress to really attack the root of the problem, Um, and a second one on on an element of that crime bill called the Violence Against Women Act, Which was, I believe, an amendment, may have been in the crime bill from the start, but was something that Sanders supported a great deal. And uh, here is Sanders talking about the crime bill and crime in general in the early 90s.
2: Uh, Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chairman, let me
1: begin with
2: a profound remark two plus two equals four. In other words, there is a logical and rational process called cause and effect. In terms of Newtonian physics, that means that every action causes an equal and opposite reaction. In other words fellow members of the House, there are reasons why things happen, as controversial as that statement may be. A farmer neglects to tend and care for his fields, it is likely that that crop will fail. A company neglects to invest in research and development, it is likely that that company will not be profitable. In a similar way, a society which neglects, which oppresses and which disdains a very significant part of its population, which leaves them hungry, impoverished, unemployed, uneducated, and utterly without hope, will, through cause and effect, create a population which is bitter, which is angry, which is violent, and a society which is crime-ridden. And that is the case in America, and it is the case in other countries throughout the world. Mr. Chairman, how do we talk about the very serious crime problem in America without mentioning, without mentioning, that we have the highest rate of childhood poverty in the industrialized world by far, with 22% of our children in poverty and 5 million kids hungry today? Do you think maybe that might have some relationship to crime? How do we talk about crime When this Congress is prepared this year to spend 11 times more for the military than for education. When 21% of our kids drop out of high school. When a recent study told us that twice as many young workers now earn poverty wages as 10 years ago. When the gap between the rich and the poor is growing wider. And when the rate of poverty continues to grow. Do you think maybe that might have some relationship to crime. Mr. Chairman, it is my firm belief that clearly there are people in our society who are horribly violent, who are deeply sick and sociopathic, and clearly these people must be put behind bars in order to protect society from them. But it is also my view that through the neglect of our government and through a grossly irrational set of priorities, we are dooming today Tens of millions of young people to a future of bitterness, misery, hopelessness, drugs, crime, and violence. And, Mr. Speaker, all the jails in the world, and we already imprison more people per capita than any other country. And all of the executions... Can I ask for one more moment, please?
0: I uh, give the gentleman 30 seconds. We run.
2: All the jails in the world... And all the executions in the world will not make that situation right. We can either educate or electrocute. We can create meaningful jobs, rebuilding our society, or we can build more jails. Mr. Speaker, let us create a society of hope and compassion, not one of hate
1: and vengeance. Thank you. And that was Bernie Sanders talking about the state of the nation as uh congress was debating the crime bill in 1994 and then i believe shortly thereafter he had more to say on the specific uh provision in that law or in that bill for um which was known as the violence against women act and here is Sanders on that topic.
2: Mr. Speaker, it is disturbing that the death of Nicole Simpson, a tragedy affecting the rich and the famous, should be necessary to force us to take notice of the horror of domestic violence. Mr. Speaker, 80% of homicides in Vermont involved domestic partners or family members. All, all of the six women slain in Vermont during 1993 died at the hands of an intimate partner or a family member. Nationally, three out of every ten women who are victims of homicide were murdered by a spouse or an intimate partner, and every 15 seconds, a woman is battered by her husband or a boyfriend. Mr. Speaker, we have 17 programs in Vermont that work with victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, and 92% of the people who provide those services are volunteers. These volunteers, most of whom are women, are doing an extraordinary job in counseling and supporting the victims of domestic violence, but they need help. Mr. Speaker, I have a number of serious problems with the crime bill, but one part of it that I vigorously support is the Violence Against Women Act. We urgently need the $1.8 billion in this bill to combat the epidemic of violence against women on the streets and in the homes of America. Thank you.
1: And there you heard Bernie Sanders talking about the crime bill that Hillary Clinton accurately said that he voted for. And this was the terrible crime bill of 1994 under Bill Clinton's presidency. Um, and you heard him say there he had a number of serious issues with the bill. But there was one provision, the Violence Against Women Act, That was part of that bill that he very, very strongly supported. And that is, in my estimation, based on that information, um, the reason why he voted for that bill and not opposed to that bill. And so we take a look at the next item here. So Bernie Sanders has gotten a whole lot of endorsements. He's gotten endorsements from politicians in Georgia and in South Carolina and in Nevada um, and in in other, other areas as well. He's gotten endorsements from some other groups as well. And I have information on one of those um, here. And this is from... Michigan Nurses, and their website is minurses.org. Michigan Nurses Association endorses Senator Bernie Sanders for president. Nurse leaders unanimously endorse Sanders' plans to create Medicare for All, address income inequality, and restore our democracy. The Michigan Nurses Association, MNA, which represents more than 11,000 registered nurses, is proud to endorse Senator Bernie Sanders for President of the United States. University of Michigan Health System Registered Nurse Katie, Schott, Katie Scott announced the MNA endorsement as part of the Sanders rally in Ypsilanti on Monday. Quote, Nurses and Bernie agree that health care is a human right and he is the only candidate who has made a commitment to Medicare for All, said Scott. Facing a life-threatening illness or injury is scary enough. In America, no one should be terrified of facing bankruptcy because they get sick. Sanders is also a sponsor of federal legislation to establish minimum nurse-to-patient ratios in all hospitals, which illustrates his commitment to patient safety over hospital profits. Quote, I am humbled and grateful for the support of the Michigan Nurses Association. Nurses are the backbone of our health care system and on the front lines of the fight to provide quality health care to all people. With MNA's support and the support of hundreds of thousands of union members across the country, we are building a political revolution that will transform American politics, said Sanders. Quote, our nurse leaders unanimously and enthusiastically voted to endorse Sanders because he shares our values across the across a broad spectrum of issues, said MNA president and RN John Armelagos. Quote, alongside health care, getting money out of politics is a top priority for our members. Nurses support Sanders' effort to challenge Citizens United. MA is not making a financial contribution to the Sanders campaign, nor has Sanders asked for a financial contribution. Instead, M&A will be sharing opportunities for members to volunteer to help advance the campaign and keep Sanders' values at the forefront of America's conversation about the future of our country. And so that was Michigan Nurses Association endorsing Bernie Sanders. And Michigan is a real key, I believe— to Bernie Sanders' path to the nomination. Um, it is one of the states that Jesse Jackson won in 1988, and Jesse Jackson is probably the last person that had such a very strong platform that was largely aligned with Bernie Sanders' platform. So I think uh, Sanders has a good shot at Michigan. I think in the current polling, he is trailing. Um, Michigan goes to... The polls uh, about a week or a little more than a week into um, March. And there will actually be a debate in Flint, Michigan, um, on March 6th between Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And from CommonDreams.org, from Nadia Prupis. During Thursday night's Democratic presidential debate, Hillary Clinton criticized Bernie Sanders' proposal for a Medicare-for-all health care program, stating, quote, the numbers just don't add up, unquote. Quote, a respected health economist said that these plans would cost a trillion dollars more a year, Clinton said, likely referring to a recent analysis by Emory University professor Kenneth Thorpe, who helped craft a single-payer health care system in Sanders' home state of Vermont, which said Sanders' proposal was off by an extra $1.1 trillion annually. Quote, So if you're having Medicare for All, single-payer, you need to level with people about what they will have at the end of the process you are proposing, Clinton said. And based on every analysis that I can find by people who are sympathetic to the goal, the numbers don't add up, and many people will actually be worse off than they are right now. Well, she didn't look very hard. Um, if she couldn't find any analysis or analyses by people sympathetic to the goal, um, that would say the numbers added up, uh, Bernie Sanders actually put that right in his plan that he published online of what the numbers were. And you can disagree with them. And I don't have any, any, I don't challenge someone disagreeing with those numbers. Um, but the fact that, uh, there are no analyses that show that these numbers are feasible. It's just flat out wrong. And here's what the, how the story goes forward. But according to other healthcare experts, both Clinton and Thorpe are working with false calculations. doctor Steffi Woolhandler, a professor in public health at the City University of New York at Hunter College and co founder of the advocacy group Physicians for a National Healthcare Program, sorry, Physicians for a National Health Program, said Friday that quote, the numbers on single payer do in fact add up. Quote, It's indisputable that single-payer systems in other countries cover everyone for virtually everything and at a much lower cost than our healthcare care system, Woolhandler said. Quote, Experience in countries with single-payer systems, such as Canada, Scotland, and Taiwan, proves that we can have more, better, and cheaper care. For example, Quote, If the U.S. moved to a single-payer system as efficient as Canada's, we'd save $430 billion on useless paperwork and insurance companies' outrageous profits, more than enough to cover the 31 million Americans who remain uninsured and to eliminate co-payments and deductibles for everyone, she said. In January, Will Handler and her colleague Dr. David Himmelstein authored a response to Thorpe's analysis that found it to be based on, quote, several incorrect and occasionally outlandish assumptions, including administrative savings of only 4.7% of expenditures and huge increases in the utilization of care, increases far beyond those that were seen when national health insurance was implemented in Canada and much larger than is possible given the supply of doctors and hospital beds. Quote, Moreover, it is at odds with analyses of the costs of single-payer programs that he produced in the past, which projected large savings from such reform, the professors wrote. Woolhandler Handler said Friday, Quote, A single-payer system could save even more money by bargaining with drug companies for discounts on drugs. Other countries get discounts of about 50%, and as the biggest customer, we would have the bargaining power to get similar savings. Finally, single-payer systems have eat, have been better at controlling costs over the long haul. Quote, "Our medical arms race with hospitals competing to offer expensive high-tech care even when they don't do enough to be good at it has driven up costs and compromised the quality of care. In contrast, single-payer nations have used thoughtful health planning to invest in expensive high-tech care where it's needed, not just where it's redundant." but profitable, she said. Every major country on earth, whether it's the UK, whether it's France, whether it's Canada, has managed to provide health care to all people as a right, and they are spending significantly less per capita on health care than we are. So I do not accept the belief that the United States of America can't do that, said Sanders. Please do not tell me that in this country, if, and here's the if, we have the courage to take on the drug companies and have the courage to take on the insurance companies and the medical equipment suppliers. If we do that, yes, we can guarantee healthcare to all people in a much more cost-effective way. And finally for this episode from Oz.com by Sally Cohn. Bernie Sanders wasn't supposed to get this far. Even among his earliest and most ardent supporters, Sanders was a protest candidate, a strategic thorn in the side of the behemoth and barreling Hillary Clinton campaign. That Sanders is doing well in the election is like throwing together icing on a barely baked cake. The idea that he could actually win the nomination, can icing have icing on it? When Sanders talks about how his campaign isn't about himself, but the voters, how his goal isn't to win, but to spark a revolution, that's not hollow rhetoric. Quote, this is not about me, it's about you, Sanders often reminds his supporters. Sure, from the get-go in announcing his candidacy, Sanders said he planned to win, as any campaign must insist, but he always tempered those expectations with a broader definition of winning, that of lifting up a set of issues and galvanizing a movement for broad change. If you try to put together a movement which says, quote, we have got to stand together as a people and say that this capital, this beautiful capital, our country belongs to all of us and not just a billionaire class, that is not raising an issue. That is winning elections, Sanders said in announcing his presidential run in front of Congress last summer. Building the movement, pressing the issues, changing the political debate, and the political system as a whole, arguably far more ambitious goals than winning the presidency. And the campaign was just an excuse for this revolutionary agenda. Quote, Bernie Sanders won't win, but his ideas might, was a headline of a piece by Perry Bacon Jr. when Sanders announced his candidacy. And that was, and still largely is, the conventional wisdom. It's hard to beat someone who isn't trying to win. That's not to say that Sanders doesn't want to be president, nor that his supporters don't want him to be. But again, that was never the primary point. Running the race and making the front runner move to the left was the definition of victory. The campaign is a tactic, not an end goal. And I'll break from the story for a moment. I don't think that making the front-runner move to the left necessarily was the the goal. I think it was a an effect. I think the goal was get these critically important issues out in front of the public, out in the media, make them talk about them, and let's try to get some traction. Let's try to get the people excited about what could be and create a groundswell and create this political revolution. So... That's that's my take. A little bit uh, different from the author's take here. This strategy comes from a leader and a team steeped in the thinking, analysis, and ambition not of a democratic insider, not of democratic insider baseball, but progressive organizing and social movements. In a sense, Sanders shares this identity with Barack Obama, who was a community organizer early in his career, and yet they deploy this similarity in radically different ways. What makes Sanders' campaign alluring to voters is also what makes it frustrating to Hillary. Sure, his critique of the system and his ideological vision find resonance in part because they speak to what progressive Democrats are troubled by in Hillary's record and beliefs. But it's the simple unwillingness to play the political game that makes it so hard to take on Sanders as an opponent. When Sanders repeatedly refuses to talk about Clinton's emails or Clinton Foundation donations or take the bait on any other smears, it makes Hillary seem even nastier when she or her husband attack Bernie's character. When Sanders barely prepares for debates, let alone combs his hair, it makes Clinton's polished one-liners and well-prepared moments seem extra-establishment. His quote, Bernie Hare don't care, hyper authenticity makes anything else look like politics as usual, which also works to his benefit, since politics as usual is what Sanders is truly trying to defeat. And you can see it in Hillary's campaign. She is desperate to say that Bernie is engaging in negative attacks, but he is not. So it's, it's very, very hard for her to get any traction. The the closest she has come is Bernie criticizing her for taking enormous fees from Goldman Sachs and then claiming that she's going to work for the ordinary people. And she, she called that an artful smear during uh, one of the, the most recent uh, debates, uh, really trying to, to pin on Bernie that he, he and his campaign are really going negative when in fact they're not. That doesn't mean there's not a lot of negative uh negative talk and negative writing out there against Hillary and against Bernie um it's it's not coming from the Bernie campaign um sometimes the the campaign not Bernie himself but sometimes uh his campaign does walk up to the edge of that line and some claim, some certainly could claim they cross it i don't believe that they have um but Many of Bernie's supporters um, have attacked Hillary Clinton in in a lot of different ways, just as many of Hillary's supporters attack Bernie and the media as well. And of course, the right wing media has been attacking Hillary Clinton since Bill Clinton won the White House, probably before, probably since Bill Clinton was running for the White House. Uh, That will not end. Um, It's it's the the blood that feeds that feeding frenzy on the right-wing extreme, uh, I hesitate to even call the media, but the, on the right-wing extreme side of the political spectrum. Sanders has said that whatever happens in the upcoming primary votes, quote, we are in this to the end, unquote. There are many ways to interpret that. Certainly it suggests he intends to stay in the race and shape it, through the convention, whatever his vote tally. But just as his campaign can be viewed more broadly, so can this timeline. Quote, if Sanders inspires supporters to delve deeper into the Democratic Party politics, unquote, writes Jamel Bowie in Slate, then it could change the long term. Bernie Sanders could be the Democratic nominee for president. It's looking more possible every day. But either way, what is clear is that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic establishment cannot defeat Sanders, not his candidacy per se, but his meaning, the ideas and values and rising movement he represents. As the old protest march chant goes, quote, the people united can never be divided and a movement once seeded can never be defeated. The burn will keep burning no matter what. And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to see more, you can check out the website, bernie-2016.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at BernieUS2016, or send me an email, bernieus2016 at gmail.com. And heading out tonight, we will hear I Feel the Burn by James Tuttle, which you can find on YouTube. Thanks for listening.
3: James Tuttle and I wrote a song for the Bernie Sanders campaign. I feel that he is the best representative of the American people that we've got, and our best shot at making a better future. Uh, this song is dedicated to him and his campaign, and all he hopes to achieve. It's called "I Feel the Burn." at your front door by the politician with papers in his hands did as you're told worked until you're old your retirement on war it was spent now the kids they are shackled with death went to school now there's only regret it is time for times to turn yes I feel the burn it's time for the times to turn. Yes, I feel the burn. Burn, baby, burn. Burn, baby, burn. Amongst the bright breed of corporate seed. This little man who fought for us since he began. The time has come for the change to be done. Establishment will soon lament He is our voice and he is our choice. Barbecue the bronze bull and let the wall burn It is time for times to turn Yes, I feel the burn